Thyatira is the church that allowed idolatry to enter into their doctrine. What does it look like when the church embraces paganism? We'll talk about it on this week's episode of Revelation Unveiled on Faith by Reason. Welcome to Faith by Reason. The website behind it all is faithbyreason.net. There you will find hundreds of hours of study material, blogs, podcasts, and video. And we are continuing our verse-by-verse study of the book of Revelation. We are currently in the portion of the book that is actually most pertinent to us. That is, are the seven letters to uh, seven churches, Revelation chapters two and three. These seven letters are actually epistles written to the church by Jesus himself. These are actually epistles that Jesus had dictated to the church. So obviously this is a message that we should pay very close attention to as the church of Jesus Christ. So far, we have gone over the first three letters to the church at Ephesus, the church that was strong on doctrine, but weak on love. Then to Smyrna, the persecuted church. And last week we looked at Pergamum or Pergamus, which is the church that compromised with the world. And in this uh, episode, we are going to look at the church of Thyatira, the church that allowed idolatry into the church and then fully embraced that paganistic idolatry. And I can tell you right now, right off the bat, that this is going to be the most controversial episode to date, (laughs) at least until we get to the episode of the so-called rapture um, about maybe a month or so from now. Which I which may top this one in controversy, maybe or maybe maybe not. But this is going to be controversial, and it's, it's going to be pretty long. So let's just dive right in by looking at the the actual passage in Revelation chapter two, um, uh, specifically chapter two, verse starting at verse eighteen. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write: These things say the Son of God, whose eyes are like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, excuse me, a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast to what you have until I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my word until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. And I've also, as I also have received from my father, I will give to him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, there is a lot going on in this letter, and there is a lot for us to cover. So let's start with the historic or contemporary level before we dive into the verses and start breaking the letter down. The actual city of Thyatira was again a city in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. It was a fairly industrial city. It was known for its uh, a purple dye that they produced 
that um, again was very well known. It gave uh, the clothes that were dyed with them a very deep, luxurious purple color. So it, they were very well renowned for that. And that's kind of how they had the level of wealth that they had. Probably not the same level of wealth as Ephesus or Smyrna, which we talked about before, but it was a pretty well-to-do uh, city. The other interesting thing about the city that I think will be connected um, to uh, what we'll be talking about a little later is that they were the city in Asia Minor most known for having guilds. Now, what are guilds? Well, you see them to a degree today. Um, you have, you know, writers' guilds, you have uh, steelworkers' guilds and things like that. They're almost, you could kind of call them like labor unions, so to speak. But really, these guilds were uh, groups of professionals who basically guarded their profession and who could enter their profession and who could work in their profession very, very closely. So if you were a member of, say, the Brass Workers Guild, well, if, if you were a member of the guild, you could do work in brass, you could sell your brass things. But if you were not a part of the guild and you wanted to sell brass, or they, they weren't going to let you. They would either they would stop you. They would uh, make sure you couldn't get any contracts or get any work with anyone else to buy your stuff. Um, so they kind of intimidate you. They're almost a little bit mafia-like in that sense. And I think you could actually trace the whole mafia, the, secreti the secretivism, the fact that they controlled certain industries back to these ancient guilds. And they were, in fact, mystics. We talked about the mystics last uh, last week when we talked about Pergamus. Mystics are people who um, guard and hoard certain types of knowledge and, and don't let other people have aspects to it. And that's how they gain, maintain their power. So these guilds are mystics. And uh, Thyatira was the city that had the most um, of these these secretive guilds that, again, controlled folks through intimidation, through guarding knowledge, and by only letting certain people in and you know keeping the rest out. So that's how they have their power. I think that's very interesting. So what did the word Thyatira mean? Well, it's going to be a little more difficult than on the previous churches because the, excuse me, the previous cities where the churches were because each one of those were Greek names and the Greek language is very precise with its definitions. You know, Ephesus meant a daughter or, I'm sorry, excuse me, Ephesus meant a darling or betrothed or beloved. Then you have Smyrna, which meant myrrh, which is, um, you know, the, the herb that yields its, its sweet fragrance by being crushed. Then you have Pergamum, which basically means mixed marriage or undesirable marriage. The problem with Thyatira is it's not actually a Greek word. In fact, um, it's more like a, a Greek, a Greekization of a Lydian word. So finding out exactly or figuring out exactly what Thyatira means is tough. There, there are a few different definitions. The most popular one is to say that Thyatira means daughter. And that's you know quite possible because thi the, the closest word in Greek to Thyatira does mean daughter. But again, it's not a Greek word. It's a Lydian word. And there are a couple of other possibilities. One, it means the castle of, uh, of, of Thya uh, or white castle. OK, great. But there's another really provocative one that I think if, if it's the correct translation of Thyatira, it's going to really resonate with what we're going to talk about when we get to the prophetic level. And that idea is that Thyatira means um, continual sacrifice or never ending sacrifice. And again, we when we get to a little later in this lesson, that I think it's going to have a, a pretty profound meaning or, or at least a, a profound application. Now, the actual church in Thyatira was likely started by Paul. In fact, Thyatira is briefly mentioned in the book of Acts, not prominently. And as I said, aside from Ephesus, 
uh, these churches are, are pretty obscure. Like I said, the Thyatira is mentioned, uh, Laodicea is mentioned briefly in Colossae, but other than that, these churches are pretty obscure. So we don't know a ton about it from the other parts of the Bible except what we have here. But again, this is these are Jesus' words, and he picked Thyatira for a reason. And we're just going to dive into that. And I think the best way to understand what was going on at the church in Thyatira is just to go back to the passage and let's just start breaking it down. So uh, starting again with verse 18. And to the angel or messenger or pastor of the church in Thyatira write, These things say the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Now, in every one of the letters, as we, when we did an introduction to the seven letters to seven churches, we... Out, we showed how every letter follows a very, very similar outline, and the letters always begin with Jesus giving a different title of himself that uh, really uh, resonates with his message to the church. And here he calls himself the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. So the Son of God, that's obviously his, is his title of, of who he is, not just um, in his, his, his deity and his lineage, but also in his authority. These things say the son of God. And I think that this is going to, when we get to the prophetic breakdown, and, and again, if we were listening last week, you know that I have, basically have, am purporting that the the church of Pergamum in the, in the prophetic sense was the beginning of the so-called Catholic church. And one thing I think the, the reason the son of God is emphasized here is as opposed to the son of Mary. And we'll get into this more because Catholics venerate Mary to a frankly heretical, heretical degree. And I think Jesus is emphasizing here, emphasizing here, hey, look, I'm the son of God. That's who I am. And going forward, who eyes like a flame of fire and feet like fine brass. Fire and brass speak of judgment. Fire, God always judges with fire because fire is that which burns up anything that is impure. And brass, as we spoke about again in last week, is the metal that symbolizes judgment because um, br brass or bronze is the metal that can absorb heat and retain heat. And like when you have the, the, the brazen serpent, who we talked about um, uh, uh, a little while ago, that was the serpent represents sin, bronze represents, or brass represents judgment. So that, that brazen serpent that Moses erected in the wilderness during the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel, it represented sin being judged. So his titles here are about his authority, about his true sonship being the son of God, and again, about judgment. So that lets you know where, where his, his mindset was as he began uh, dictating this letter to the church of Thyatira. Moving on, he says, I know your works. He says it in every single letter. He knows our works. And as I've said before, that's either good or bad. It's either very comforting or very frightening, depending on what your works are. Jesus knows our works. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. Well, that sounds pretty good. So Jesus starts out with, as he does in, in some, in several of the letters by giving them accommodation that he, that they have great works and these works are love, service, faith, and patience and continuing on. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. So these good works that the church in Thyatira are, are doing, they're going to continue to grow. So the, as time goes on, they, they do even uh, greater works. They do even more work. So that's a good thing. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. So he went with the commendation and now it's time for the admonishment. 
Verse 20, nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet, prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So um, sexual immorality and eating things sacrificed to idols, this is blatant idolatry, especially in that time period when um, sexual acts were, were a part of pagan worship. Um, sexual sacrifices, they called it. They had uh, what, what were called in, in some of the Greek temples and Roman temples, they had temple prostitutes who would basically you, you'd pay them to have intercourse with these women as part of the worship of these pagan gods. And to eat things sacrificed to idols was a huge thing, especially when you read the letters of Paul. Eating things sacrificed to idols means you are actively participating in the worship of these false gods, of these idol gods of the other nations, of this paganism. So who is this woman Jezebel? This woman Jezebel is the one allowing this to happen. Well, there, there are a couple of ideas. First is that there was probably a actual woman who was who infiltrated the Christian church at Thyatira and was seducing um, these the, the people in the church, um, convincing them, compromising with them in order to have them uh, participate in this blatant idolatry. And and how does she do that? How does she get the church? How does she seduce the church in, of Jesus into uh, committing idolatry? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the name she's given here. And I think it's unlikely that this woman's actual name was Jezebel. I think when Jesus used the word Jezebel, he is using it as a, a, a mnemonic to reference the original Jezebel in the Bible because this because the Jezebel in the Old Testament um, in the book of Kings, actually beginning in First uh, Kings uh, chapter 16, there was the, the woman Je uh, Jezebel who was entered into a political marriage with the king of Israel at the time, Ahab. Uh, Je Jezebel was a woman from Sidon, who, which was you know one of the pagan worshiping nations surrounding Israel. And she entered into a political marriage with Ahab and she um, seduced Israel into worshiping idols. How did she do it? Probably the same way the woman who was being called Jezebel did it in Thyatira. And that is by saying, uh, tempting people by saying that, hey, you know what, you have your God of the Bible and that's great. But, you know, we have these other gods who do good things for us too. So if you sacrifice to pagan God X, well, you can also get some good things from, from them. And, you know, and if, if your God, if your God Jehovah of the Bible is a good God, then he, he wouldn't mind you also worshiping these other gods because you know they're, they're that means they're part of his his creation god if god created everything that means he created these false gods as well these idol gods and they're maybe they're in partnership with with god so you can we can do both you can both worship god and get good things from god and you can also worship all these other pagan roman and greek gods and get a little something from them too and you know sounds good it's like it's a compromise you know why why just have one god giving you good things and you can have a bunch of gods giving you good things it doesn't mean you, you you're against the god of the bible you're you're for him but you're also for the other ones it's just one great big happy family of gods but of course we know that does not fly with the god of the bible not with jehovah because the bible makes it clear that jehovah god is a jealous god not jealous in the petty sense that we humans get jealous over someone who you know, looks at our wife or girlfriend or boyfriend or husband the wrong way. Not that kind of jealous. Jealous means that he, 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 he is actually zealous. I think actually if we 
take the word jealous and replace it with the word zealous, it would actually be a bit more accurate that he loves us so much. He does not want us to bow down to these other gods or to compromise ourselves in any way because he knows that his way for us is the best way. He is the God of gods. He is the Elohim of Elohim, to use the Hebrew. And any and if you worship anything less than God, you'll be getting less than the best. So God is zealous for us, for all of his children, because he wants us to have only the best and not have anything less than the true God. So he is zealous. Of us. So he, is, he would never advocate or be okay with us compromising with other gods, with idolatry. But that's what Jezebel was all about. And, and it says specifically that she seduced people into this. And so it's, it's a very feminine thing. It's obviously I'm not saying anything uh, negative about females in general, but seductiveness is, is you know, pretty much a, it's a female quality. And that seductiveness is, is one of the reasons why the mnemonic or, 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 or nickname or typography of a Jezebel is a woman who uses her feminine wiles to seduce people into doing the wrong thing. And seduction is all about presenting a very appealing uh, case to do what this person wants you to do. And we're going to talk in, in the next uh, episode, I'm going to take a quick break from the, the the biblical study of Revelation just to talk about the spirit of Jezebel that I believe is alive and well in our current culture. So we'll take a little break there, but let's get back to uh, the, the passage. Verse 21, and I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. So this is a, a demonstration of God's mercy that he was he wants us all to be saved. He wants everyone to to come to him and repent. He gave her time to do it, but she did not. So indeed, so because she didn't repent, she gets his judgment that you'll hear see here in verse 22. Indeed, I will cast her into a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. Now, when he says this, does he mean the great tribulation? Well, keep in mind one thing that the term the great the great tribulation is not a biblical term. That is a term, that's a Christianese term. That's a term that we human Christians have given to the the last three and a half years of human history. The, we call the last seven years the tribulation and the last three and a half years, which are going to be even more intense, the great tribulation. And we use that by actually sliding, we get that by slightly misquoting Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus says that after when the Antichrist, would, who we'll obviously talk about down the road a bit, uh, commits what's called the abomination of desolation by by uh, setting himself up in the temple as God, then there will be a time of great tribulation. Jesus did not say there will be the great tribulation. That's He didn't never use that as a proper term. He said there will be time of great tribulation. However, that said, I believe that Jesus is specifically speaking of that time simply because he is using the same wording here as he used him in Matthew 24 to speak of the period of time after the, the Antichrist reveals who he really is and people have to take the mark of the beast or or not worship him, which sounds like this church is going is, is being promised that if they don't get their act together, they're going to go through this period of time um, where the Antichrist rules. And so we'll get into that in a bit when we talk about the prophetic um, aspect of it. But for the contemporary church, I think he was he, he was um, speaking of a time of their tri great tribulation with the Roman Empire. Okay, um, so keep, keep going to verse 23. I will kill her children with death or pestilence or disease 
And the churches shall know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds, and I will give each one of you to each one of you according to your works. This is interesting. Um, he is promising, you know, pestilence on them, but he also says when he does this, Jesus is saying that churches, which means all seven churches, will know that he is the one who searches the hearts and minds, meaning it doesn't matter about what your appearance is like. And we're going to get into this and why appearances and so is so important to to these churches. But Jesus says, I search the hearts and minds of everyone, and I will give each of you according to your works. Interesting that the word works appears again here. So that in, in verse 19, he says he knows their works and that they that they have service and patience and faith and their works are going to be more are going to grow as as um, as time goes on. So this is a church that's a lot about works. So they seem to be a very works for per, uh, uh, focused church. OK, let's move on. Uh, verse 24. Now I say to the rest in Thyatira, as many as have, do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have until I come. So it sounds like there are, there are some in Thyatira who didn't fall for the corruption of this uh, Jezebel woman and didn't commit the idolatry. And he commends them and saying, since you didn't do that, all you have to do is just hold on to what you know. Hold on to the truth that you already have. And he's not going to ask any, Jesus will not ask anything more of you just because you happen to be in this corrupt church. If you just hold fast to what you know to be true and don't fall for this idolatry, that's all you have to do. Verse 26, and to he who overcomes and keeps my word until the end, I will give him power over the nations. And I'm going to get into um, the, the message to the overcomers towards the end of this lesson. Right now, I want to dive into the prophetic aspect of this. I The, the reason I'm not going to get, I'm not going to start with the congregational, it, we'll go into the congregational and personal level because I think we'll, we'll get to that as we deal with towards the end. So I'm doing this a little bit in reverse. I'm going to start with the, with the prophetic aspect, which is what I usually say for at the end. So as I said earlier, the prophetic level basically states that these seven letters and the order in which they were written outlines church history in advance. So the church at Ephesus would represent the first uh, level of the church, the apostolic age for the first couple centuries when the church was very strong on doctrine. Then the church at Smyrna would represent the next couple centuries after that wherein the church was being pretty furiously persecuted by the Romans. And then the church we, just, we talked about last week, the church of Pergamum, would represent the uh, sort of medieval times when the church began to compromise after the Roman emperor Constantine uh, started tolerating Christians and, and basically made Christianity legal and started favoring Christians. And then his uh, third successor, Theodosius, actually made Christianity the official religion of of the Roman Empire, which sounds great on the surface, except for the fact that it, it because he made Christianity the official religion and outlawed and outlawed all other religions, then all the different pagans were forced to convert at least nominally into Christianity. Now they didn't; they were still pagans, but they had to now go to Christian churches and pretend to be Christians in order not to be killed. They did not have the same integrity as the Christians church, the persecuted church in Smyrna, which said, you know, we're going to worship our God, our true God, no matter what you do to us. Well, they didn't have that integrity. They said, wait, you know, if, if we have to pretend to worship your Christian God, then we'll pretend to worship him, but we'll still be pagans, which of course led to um, a, lo a lot of uh, turmoil within the church. And then of course, the mystics who, who's, who basically follow the power and infiltrate any, all the centers of power 
and corrupt them, they came to the Christian church and said, hey, we have an, we have a compromise for you. We, we, we know how to handle these pagans coming in. All you have to do is just blend your Christianity with your paganism to make the pagans more comfortable so they'll be a little less rambunctious. And then slowly over time, you can just start weeding the paganism out and then eventually they'll truly believe in your God. Now, this was a trick. Sounds good on the surface. But it was a trick that the mystics were doing. They knew what they were doing. They knew that anytime you compromise good with evil, evil always wins. And again, I'm not going to go too much more into this because we talked about it ad nauseum last week. But the the bottom line is that the um, the pagan mystics infiltrated the church. They compromised. They mixed Christianity with paganism. And of course, paganism won. They just slapped Christian names onto their old pagan gods. And they just continued practicing paganism under Christian trappings and that's where the church ended up and it turned into what we know today as Roman Catholicism. Catholicism is the mix of paganism with Christianity. Sorry if that offends you. It's historically provable. It's, I mean, it's, if you don't believe it, it's because you choose not to believe it. There is abundant evidence, blatant evidence that that um, Catholicism is just a mix of Christianity with paganism. And unfortunately, when you mix the two, paganism wins. And prophetically speaking, Thyatira represents the period of time when paganism won. And it represents the roughly thousand year period of time when the Roman church basically ruled the entire Western world. When I was growing up, I was part of a traditional Christian church, not not Catholic. I don't. I wouldn't call it Protestant. I don't like the term Protestant. I'm not protesting anything. But I was part of a traditional Christian church, and as such, I, I knew very little about Catholicism. I knew that Catholics were out there, that they worshipped at a different type of church than than I worshipped in, and that they were nominally Christian too, but they were some kind of different Christian because again, we didn't associate with them. They didn't associate with us. They had these nuns who wore these weird black and white outfits with their heads covered and you have these priests who wore collars and they had these weird robes and different sayings they called a church mass and they called communion the Eucharist so they seemed to be some branch of Christianity that was completely foreign so I, I didn't know what they were but I assumed that they were Christian in some form just not the same kind of Christian as I was but what really started to bother me about Catholicism as I began to learn more about it and visited their different uh, cathedrals just to try to learn more is is, is the grandiose nature of it. These huge, uh, enormous, lavishly appointed cathedrals, gold and jewels everywhere on their crosses and on all their different items. And I, I would learn about their historical prevalence and the way they conquered nations and the, the inquisitions and just again the vast wealth and I wonder I wonder how could a faith started by a humble carpenter from Nazareth and a, and a bunch of mostly fishermen from Galilee turn into this gargantuan social political religious and extraordinarily wealthy uh, political institution known as Roman Catholicism. I mean, how, how could a faith started by Jesus who eschewed any type of material stuff and constantly told people to focus on the spiritual, how could that become an organization that valued material wealth and power and control and, and just the consolidation of power into their hands? 
how how could it morph into that? And the answer is, it couldn't and it didn't. Catholicism has nothing to do with the mission and message of Jesus. It has everything to do with men. And these men are specifically the mystics we talked about last week, who infiltrated the church under the guise of helping the Christians with the migration of the pagans that were in Rome into the church. And what they did, they infiltrated the church, they rose up in the hierarchy, and they brought their paganism with them. And, and then being in charge of the church, they basically start, brought their pagan worship in and they slapped Christian names on their pagan gods. And again, that's when paganism ruled the church. And it rules the Catholic church to this day. Now, I could go on for hours, literally hours, talking about all the heretical doctrines of Catholicism. And the reason those doctrines are heretical is because they're all pagan-based. They're just Christianized paganism, and they conflict with or flat-out contradict the Bible in many areas. But I don't want to do that. I don't want to spend that much time talking about everything that's wrong with Catholicism. It would take hours, if not days. If you want to take a deeper dive into this, then please go to the um, blog post that I did on this church in my series on the history of the church. I will link it below. But since we're already at the half hour mark, I just want to um, really look at or examine two of the most important areas of Christianity, of Christian doctrine that have been perverted and tell you why and how and what the truth is. The first doctrine, the most important doctrine, is a doctrine of salvation. Now, the Bible is very clear on what salvation is. The writings of Paul tells us very clearly that salvation is faith in Jesus, in his death, resurrection, and ascension. If you believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose again on the third day, you are saved. It's a gift from God, as it says in Ephesians, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So it is a gift, not about works. Catholicism says the opposite. It says that salvation is through works. Catholic doctrine will tell you that, yes, believing in Jesus begins the process of salvation, but then the rest of it is up to you. You have to literally work for your salvation. You have to do certain works. And these works are the religious liturgy of Catholicism. You have to take the Eucharist, which is what they call communion, and they say in the Eucharist that the wafer and the wine literally become the uh, body and and blood of Jesus. So you're kind of committing cannibalism there. You have to pray to Mary. They have Mary as the co-redeemer with Christ, and she's an eternal virgin. And even though the Bible says she had other kids, two of whom wrote books in the Bible, you have to uh, do your Hail Marys. You have to do the rosary. You have to pay indulgences. Indulgences is money you pay to the church for your salvation. I mean, you are literally buying your way into heaven. How heretical is that? I mean, you've probably seen movies with mobsters in it, and these mobsters are doing, and of course, they're real life mobsters, of course, who are doing horrible things, uh, murder, racketeering, um, prostitution, gambling, just drugs, horrible stuff, but, but they're all Catholic. Why? It's because of the this doctrine of indulgences. They believe that if they took, take the riches that they've gotten through crime and just give them to the church, then the church will pray for them and they'll get into heaven, not based on what they did, but based on them giving money to the church, which is one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why the church, the Catholic church has so much money, vast amounts of wealth. In fact, you will see on the screen right now some images of when, when my wife and I 
were in Rome uh, last year, and, and actually in, in, in Italy, but specific, specifically in Rome, and just vast, vast amounts of treasure that they have gotten over the years from people giving money to the church in order to get into heaven because the church, the Catholic church positions themselves as heaven's official bouncers. They get to say who gets into heaven and who does not. And again, you can go to my blog post to get more information on that, but that's really, that's what they do. That's how they became so incredibly wealthy. If, if they, the, the, the amount of wealth my wife and I saw that was just staggering. If they sold 10% of it, they kept 90% of what they had and just sold 10% of it. They could feed every starving person in the world, but they don't. They actually claim poverty. Anyway, it's about works. It's about what you do so that you actually get partial credit for your salvation. When you get to heaven, if you're if the Catholics believe that you can go up to Jesus and say, Hey Jesus, look what you and I did. <laughs> Seriously. That's, that's what they say. They, they believe that you have a part that they, Jesus did a part and now you have to do a part that is unbiblical. The Bible is very clear that salvation is all about what Jesus did. We didn't help him. I did not help Jesus save me. He did it all on his own. He lived his life. He died on the cross. He rose again without any input from me. And no matter how many confessionals I go to or how many confessionals a Catholic goes to, no matter how many rosary prayers they do, no matter how many Hail Marys and how, no matter how many wafers and wine they drink, how, no matter how much money they give, that is not going to save them because salvation is through righteousness. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And I shudder to think how many people who believe this theology are going to end up in hell because they didn't actually rely on the death and resurrection of Jesus alone for their salvation. If you are not saved, if you believe that you were saved by Jesus and your own works, the Bible says you were saved only if you believe solely on the faith. Uh, if you believe solely on Jesus through faith and grace. And again, it's, it's, it's going to be a really unfortunate rude awakening for people who thought they could buy the way into heaven or do their works to get into heaven. Okay, the second major heresy that I want to talk about is the authority of God and who has the authority and where that authority comes from. Now, if you are a mainstream, mainline Christian, then you believe that the authority of God is in the Bible, that the Bible is God's inerrant, infallible, complete word, that if you have an issue with anything um, with another Christian about something, if you want to know the truth, you go to the Bible and the Bible is your final arbitrator of what truth is. So the, and, the, and the only authority that any person has is the authority granted to them through the Bible. And if it's not biblical authority, then God does not approve it. Catholics do not believe that. They believe that God gave authority, literally carte blanche to certain men on earth. These men are called popes and they have the Holy See, as they call it. And, um, these so-called Catholic traditions. And I want to illustrate that through a story. I have a friend, a very good friend, who is a devout Catholic. Now, he very smart guy. Um, he has an advanced degree from one of the top universities in the country. A very good thinker everywhere except Catholicism. When it comes to Catholicism, he kind of checks his brain at the door and ignores all the contradictions. And he's just, he's a devout Catholic. And he and I would get into some, some verbal sparring some intense discussions about Catholicism versus non-Catholicism versus, you know, regular Christianity versus Catholicism. And once I decided, you know what, let's just, let's just end this once and for all. I, I decided that I, I wrote him a very, very long treatise in, via email, just laying out 
all the different ways that Catholicism and Catholic doctrine uh, contradicted the Bible and why and why they both can't be true. So instead of, you know, we, we'd, again, like I said, we would have some verbal sparring here and there and, it, you know, it wouldn't last too long, but I wanted to be definitive. I wanted to really uh, get to him because, you know, he's my friend. I wanted to make sure that he's on the right path. So I wrote all this stuff and I sent it to him and I expected, you know, you know, I'm going to win this. I, he is going to have to admit that there is a serious contradiction between the Catholic doctrine and the actual Bible. And what he, he wrote me back and what he wrote really changed my view. And actually, he, technically, he won the argument because once he was once I read what he said, I agreed that I was never going to debate him on this again. And here's what he said. He said to me, I understand that you're writing all these things that using the Bible as the the basis of your argument. However, you have to understand that we Catholics don't use the Bible alone as our source of truth. Therefore, your arguments are meaningless to me because they're based on only one source of truth. We have we as Catholics have another source of truth, and that is our sacred traditions. And we believe that our sacred traditions are equal to the Bible, that the Bible is the word of God, and so are our Catholic traditions. And if there is a place where there is a conflict or contradiction between our sacred traditions and the Bible, then our sacred traditions get the deference because they are more recent revelations from God. Therefore, if the Bible says one thing and our traditions say another, then we give deference to our traditions. And I read that and I said, okay, I can't argue with you anymore. Because anytime you have an argument with someone, you should have a final arbiter that you both agree on as the ultimate source of truth. For example, if I'm having an argument with someone over the definition of a word, and we both agree that the dictionary is the final arbiter of truth on word definitions, then whichever one of us can define that word in a way that is closest to the dictionary definition, then we win. I went into this discussion with him believing, falsely believing, that we both had the Bible as our final arbiter. And I believe that since I had definitions that were closest to the Bible, then I would win. And he corrected me that the Bible is not his only source of truth, that he also has these Catholic doctrines. So that means that everywhere the Bible and Catholicism uh, diverge on things like, you know, Mary's divinity, you know, the Bible says, I mean, excuse me, the Catholics say that uh, Mary is a co-redeemer with Jesus, that she was immaculate, immaculately conceived just like Jesus was, and that she, again, didn't have any children, even though the Bible says she had at, at least uh, four. And even though um, they, they say she, you know, she died sinless, which is ridiculous, and, and all of the other things that the Catholics believe that, you know, Peter was the first pope, even though there's no biblical evidence of that, that there was an unbroken line of secession from Peter to the current pope, no evidence for that. The Bible speaks against it. All the many things that the Bible says that conflicts with Catholicism, Catholics will ignore it because their doctrinal beliefs, their so-called sacred, sacred traditions trump the Bible. So those are the two huge areas. You know, again, there are tons of other stuff I can go into and you can you can research it on your own. You can look into my, my blog post that I'll link. But salvation and the authority of God are the two biggest things, the two biggest heresies that these mystics have pulled over on the Catholic people. And I want to make this clear. I am not disparaging the Catholic people. I am talking about the hierarchy. 
I'm talking about the people in the Vatican who dress up in these robes and make these decrees and they know that they're not from God. They know that they are pagans, but they have fooled millions, billions of people into believing that they are the authority, that they are actually God's authority. And the worst part is is, is that they, because they claim to represent God, they fooled most of the entire world into believing that they are true Christians. Most of the world believe that Catholics are, that Catholicism is a form of Christianity, if not the true Christianity, so that when people who are not believers, people who are not Christians, they look at Catholicism and they see the vast amount of wealth, the hypocrisy, the scandals with, with what they were doing with little boys, and I'm not going to get into all that stuff, it's pretty disgusting stuff, but all the horrible things they've done throughout history, the Inquisitions, the Crusades, all these terrible things they've done, where they say, well, if these people represent God, and these people are vain, and narcissistic, and murderous, and hypocritical, and cruel, and, and legalistic, and intolerant, and bigoted and hatred towards women and Jews, well then, if they represent God, then God must also be murderous and hypocritical and warlike and cruel and all these other things. So they have convinced generations of people that God is just as horrible as they are since they claim to represent him. And that is one of the worst things about Catholicism. But again, it is not true Christianity. And I believe the book of Revelation, which we will... We'll get to this verse um, later when we get to Revelation chapters 17 and 18. I believe the verse that Jesus um, um, wanted John to write down here where he says, come out of her, my people, lest you partake in her judgment. I believe that's a call to everyone who's a Catholic. If you're a Catholic listening right now, my only message to you is the message that Jesus gives. Come out of her, her being this Catholic hierarchy, come out of her, lest you participate in her judgments. So what am I saying? Am I saying the Catholic people aren't saved? not saying that at all. I don't have the authority or the desire to tell anyone who is saved and who isn't. That's not my business. What I do know is that the Bible is very clear on what salvation is. And if you are a Catholic person and you believe solely on Jesus for the redemption of your sins, then you're saved. If you didn't, then you don't, just like anyone else. But I'm not here to judge you and tell you who and what you are. All I'm telling you is what the Bible says and that the Bible is the only, only authoritative source for truth as far as God, Jesus, and Christianity is concerned. Nothing else. All right, let's wrap this up. Uh, the final words that Jesus had um, to the letter, uh, in, in, to the church at Thyatira in his letter, he essentially promised them that if they did not leave this woman, Jezebel, then they would, they would be tossed into great tribulation. I think they were promised in time suffering because I believe that this church will be um, judged in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. And if you don't come out of her, you're going to again partake in those judgments. And Jesus said in verse 26 of chapter 2, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That's interesting. So he will give them true authority over the nations, not the authority that the Catholic Church has, has wielded over the nations through their, again, corruption of of the word of God and by claiming that they were the authority of God on earth and conquering nations based on that. Every nation during that medieval times from, again, around the, about, from around 700 AD to 1700 AD, the Catholic Church ruled the world and they subjugated kings. And they did it claiming to be under under God. And of course, they were not. They were It was just basically the extension of the Roman Empire. 
but if they if, if you are if the overcomers are promised true authority over the nations that the one that will rule them with a rod of iron and will dash them to pieces like uh, potter's vessels so they that's Jesus' true authority just as I received authority from my father I will also give to that one the morning star um, the morning star is again another title of, of Jesus so Jesus is, Jesus is saying here that those who, who are in Thyatira who get out of the, that church and actually embrace the truth of who he is he will give them true authority over the nations and they will get the true Jesus instead of this false authority over the nations and this false Jesus who the uh, Catholic hierarchy claims to represent. Unfortunately, it looks like the historical Thyatira did not listen to the works of Jesus because as I said a few um, episodes ago, there are only two of the seven cities that, are, that still exist today and Thyatira is not one of them. Thyatira went under and they were are now on the ash heap of history. Thyatira is nothing but ruins now in modern day Turkey. The city did not survive. And the church that represents them, the Catholic Church, also will not survive. However, they will endure to the end. As I've mentioned, the last four churches, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, are all made in are all made promises about the end times. So they will all be around. So the Catholic Church will be around all the way until the second coming of Christ. Unfortunately, they will be judged. Okay, I'm gonna that that wraps this up. The rest of the uh, the the church at Thyatira study. In the next episode, I'm going to do a little something different. Um, before we go on to the next church at Sardis, and I will say this, by the way, to the Catholics who are listening who are upset with me, uh, take solace in this. Despite all the things negative that Jesus said about the church he actually of Thyatira, he actually has some commendations for them. But if the church at Thyatira represents Catholicism, then the next church, Sardis, should represent the Reformation. And Sardis is one of two churches about which Jesus has nothing positive to say. So in, in a way, the Protestant churches actually get a, a, a worse uh, evaluation than the Catholic Church going by our prophetic um, layout. So as I was saying, we're going to do something a little different in the next episode. Before we get to Sardis, I'm actually going to spend some time, spend an episode looking at the spirit of Jezebel in a different manifestation. See, the spirit of Jezebel was a woman leading a community astray through a perversion of her femininity and sexuality. And we are actually experiencing that in our current culture today. There is a feminine, or rather I say feminist, and by that I mean radical feminist aspect in our society today that is leading our society astray, is causing damage to men, but worst of all, it's causing incredible, horrible damage to women. Women are actually coming out on the worst end of this. And this perversion is, again, being led by nominally by women. But I actually believe there's a satanic uh, hand behind it, truly guiding it, because Satan has a deep hatred of women for some reasons we'll discuss next week. So it's going to be controversial, just as much, just as controversial, if not more so as this episode. So let's stay tuned for that. In the meantime, I just want to say thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Please subscribe to Faith by Reason. Subscribe on YouTube. Um, hit the subscription and the notification bell. Also subscribe through faithbyreason.net. And I will talk to you next week when we look at the spirit of Jezebel in our current age. <laughs>